Hi, we're Grace and Clara, here to shake up the world of women's health. We know firsthand how intimidating it can be to speak up when it comes to issues like your menstrual cycle or menopause. That's why we created Unprocessed, a weekly podcast where we dive into every aspect of women's health, from mental well-being to physical nutrition. We're here to ask the burning questions and encourage us all to advocate for ourselves. So get ready for some smart, cheeky and witty discussions about all things women's health. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, we're joined by naturopath Lauren Wood. Lauren's deep passion for natural medicine stems from witnessing its profound positive impact on her and her clients' lives. Lauren extends her expertise to women's health, hormones, thyroid, skin, the reproductive cycle, and fertility for both men and women. In today's conversation, we explore the intricate connection between the gut and various aspects of the body. But first, Clara, it's our last episode of the year and how would you like to round off this season? I thought this was a really good time to talk about intention setting because obviously this is the key time going into Christmas and the New Year's comes around and everyone talks about New Year's resolutions. So I was really keen to talk about intention setting but also find out what your intentions are for the New Year, what you've been thinking about. Um, and also talk to, you know, everyone about how to set I guess, realistic intentions because this is the time that I think people come up with some pie-in-the-sky <laughs> ideas and then they get really depressed because, you know, like February comes around, March comes around, and they haven't done anything about it. Yeah, and, like, I have a friend who's a personal trainer and he says January is his busiest time. But I was thinking about this and Getting out, getting active, it's a great goal. But I feel like sometimes people go too hard too quick and that's why they burn out on their goals. And that's Mm. why by February, March, they're not going to the gym as much. So when it comes to setting intentions, I think to make it more purposeful and easier to fulfill, start slow. Break your intentions down to monthly goals that are micro instead of focusing on the bigger intentions and the by the end of the year, I want to lose 10 kilos. Focus on breaking that down, how to get to that big goal. I think that's the key to setting intentions for 2024. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's exactly right. Like I think a lot of people come into it and go, you know, I want to lose 10 kilos. And they start off really strong and they they go, oh, I'm really keen. And exactly what you were talking about, the personal trainer. So, you know, motivation so high at the beginning of the year and that slowly starts to wane there's a few things that might come in that might be a roadblock and as soon as that happens it's really easy to just fall off the wagon so for example you do it in January and then January also is still a big entertaining time (laughs) so people will Mm -hmm. be like you know you might be still on holidays or you know Australia Day comes around there's all of that kind of stuff so I think it's all about setting smaller goals exactly to what your point is and you know if it is a food intention which obviously you know um, I quit sugar we're obviously into the food intentions so you know for example quitting sugar it's about making that achievable by looking at what you can slowly start to maybe wean off and slowly start to introduce Big changes that are a shock to the system are going to be really hard to maintain and sustain. And also I feel like, so there's food, there's eating healthy, there's fitness goals, but also think about intention goals that like stimulate your nervous system and fill your cup and help you sit in a rest Mm. and 
relaxation. So things like our one of our team members who have been on the podcast, Henna, her intention and goal this year was to read 55 books and she's three away from achieving mm, that goal. Love that. But that is such a simple goal that you can implement every day. So this is a call out to also set intentions that fuel your soul as well. I I totally agree. I think that's the thing. There's, I think people focus so much generally on a health goal. And I think that's obviously should be a priority. So I think making your health is a priority, but it doesn't necessarily always need to be something like, you know, losing 10 kilos. It could be something as simple as let me slowly start to up my vegetable intake. So knowing that maybe at the moment you're not that great at always adding greens to your meal, add some greens to your meal. Same with the book intention. Like I love, I love that. I was actually literally yesterday walking past a bookstore thinking I haven't been into a bookstore in years and I would really like to read a book. And then I also went, get realistic about that. (laughs) It's so difficult for me to like, do that at the moment with a small Mm. child um but it's probably not going to be my goal but stuff like exactly that maybe it's you know learning to study something else like a language like I have been thinking I I need to learn Bahasa Indonesia so um my partner's half Indonesian my baby is technically a quarter Indonesian but she um yeah so she will be growing up learning Indonesian so I want to learn Bahasa Indonesia so that I can converse um, but Mm. also like I can help her and help her learn the language because I think having a second language is so important and especially if you can do it really young it's great for a lot of things but mental agility when you're later in life having two Mm -hmm. languages has been shown to have huge effects on like dementia and all sorts of things like positive outcomes for those situations so I think it's really important. But it could be that. I've also wanted to learn pottery. Um, yes. And I think that's going to be something, I think we've talked about this often, that how do you put an hour aside for yourself maybe a week and whether it is something like a, um, you know, going to the gym or it's maybe a pottery thing that you go and you learn pottery or you learn something that you've been wanting to learn, like a new skill. And I think that is so important for all sorts of things. A, it'll be an hour to myself. It'll be de-stress. You know, I won't be thinking about many things because I'll be trying to learn a new skill. But the other side of things is that it's, you know, it's another skill to take in so my brain is activated again. I can actually, you know, take on learning, which I love learning. And it's mm. really something that I think as you're older, you have to intentionally set yeah, absolutely, to learn something. It's really hard to do it just in your everyday life like you used to do as a child. I think um, oh, you're going to laugh when I say this. I was watching the Harry and Meghan documentary on Netflix and there was part mm. of this documentary that says, Every year they pick a word and that is their word for the year. I'm pretty yeah. sure a few other podcasters do this. So my yeah. my word for next year is push 
And that is because I want to push myself to do things that I've never done before. So my two goals for next year is I want to renovate my house. I have no clue how to renovate my house, but (laughs) I'm going to give it a crack. Um, My second goal is I want to write a book. So I feel like everyone in their lives has one book within them that they need to write. And I feel like I have a book in me. I have a story to tell. So they're my two who it's challenging and it scares me, but my goal is to push myself outside my comfort zone because when you push yourself outside of the comfort zone, that is where you grow, learn and expand your life and everything that you love in life as well. Like it opens up a new window. Hey, it's Grace here. Just want to quickly interrupt the episode to say it's time to start nourishing you. Join the eight-week program and get eight weeks of easy, delicious meal plans with full shopping lists. And at $5.50 or under per serve, it couldn't be more affordable to eat healthy. Each week, we'll give you a range of meals to cook that are quick and easy to prepare with minimal waste. You don't have to be a master chef to enjoy these nutritious meals. Plus fun online workouts, mentoring from industry experts, and access to our exclusive sleep school. Spots are limited. Join now. Now let's get back into the episode. So Lauren, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. We're so delighted to have you. We always ask our guests one question, and that is, what was the catalyst that made you pursue a career as a naturopath? So for me, it comes down to a personal story. So um, it was my own sort of gut health journey um, that yeah I dealt with uh, for years. So it was chronic, um, chronic gut health issues. So it was like constipation, really severe constipation um, and lots of bloating, just so much fluid retention as well. Um, and I was feeling really, I guess, fatigued and um, just super bad anxiety as well. Um, so it was just my own gut health. I went through the conventional system at the time because um, my so my family didn't have any background in naturopathic medicine, any alternative medicines at all. So um, for me, it was just like, all right, we'll see doctors, we'll go down the conventional route and um, see you know if I can get some answers. Um, I even saw at the time a leading gastroenterologist um, and underwent all the um, all the tests. So we did like a transit study. Um, we did, I saw a physio as well. So bowel physiotherapy, that was actually really good. Um, we did like a balloon study as well. So basically it's like a balloon, um, like expulsion test. Um, so there was that, I just, I went through everything. Um, I ended up then going down the colonoscopy route. So colonoscopy, gastroscopy, um, because they still, like, they couldn't find out what was wrong with me. They're just like, no, nah, you're, um, basically it's IBS. There's, we, we, we don't know what's wrong with you. Um, and so I had a colonoscopy and the colonoscopy revealed polyps, um, in my bowel. And so one of the polyps was so big, um, it was, it had changed, like the cells had started to change. Um, so they refer to this as moderately dysplastic, which means that it was actually turning, like it, if I if I left it, it could turn into cancer, for instance. Wow. And so for me at that time, I was about like 18, I think I was, yeah, I was about 18 or 19. And that was just such a, uh, such a fright. I was absolutely um, devastated. Um, yeah. So... I just, along with having all these symptoms and just trying to figure out what's wrong with me, I was like, no, well, I'm really sick and I, I, like, I don't, I, there's nothing that we can do about it. Um, 
so so yeah from then after that I remember going home and my stepmom so she she's someone who her um, family they're all interested they love naturopaths they love Chinese medicine um, kinesiology all that sort of stuff and um, she said look Lauren come and see my naturopath and just you know see how you go because there's nothing to lose um and yeah so I went and saw the naturopath and I got so much better just so much better I couldn't believe it like I was I was going to the toilet I was just feeling I had so much more energy um the anxiety was going I was just feeling so much better um so that was really good and then I think it wasn't until basically I then started studying naturopathy myself that I really delved into the root cause of what was driving my digestive issues um and yeah getting getting down into the bottom of it and that was where the analysis of the microbiome came into it and just how much of an impact that can have on our whole entire body um so yeah that was an absolute game changer for me and then yeah colonoscopies I was then because I was I was put on um routine surveillance I was having to get colonoscopies every two years um and yeah after that everything went like they're completely clear there's nothing wrong my symptoms went like I completely healed my gut and it was all through naturopathy in terms of gut health space thyroid as well thyroid mm-hmm. so I had and this is related to the gut but I had an underfunctioning thyroid um subclinical hypothyroidism so based on the labs um I still fell within the reference range but at the lower end of the reference range so it was very symptomatic my metabolism basically just wasn't working you know like it was just mm-hmm. completely slowed down which is compounding the issue what does subclinical actually mean because I know that's a diagnosis that gets thrown around quite a bit and a lot of people aren't too sure if that means that they've got the full disease or they don't have it or the condition or they don't have it and they're not sure where that exactly lands them, I guess, in conventional medicine. So subclinical means that it's you still fall within the reference ranges. So if mm. you're treated by a doctor um, because you have a thyroid condition, basically it means that you fall without you fall out of the reference ranges, the lab reference ranges, um, and therefore you require medical intervention. So you may require thyroid hormone replacement, or if you have an overactive thyroid, you know sometimes they can actually go and ablate like part of the thyroid. Um, so subclinical means that you still fall within the reference ranges from a conventional perspective they can't really do much to treat you um and i find they say well you know you're in the reference ranges there's nothing wrong with you Mm. um so but us as naturopaths we know that people who still fall within those reference ranges are very symptomatic um and this is where we then delve further into the thyroid picture and we go okay what else makes up um what what else is involved in thyroid hormone production, thyroid hormone conversion, so from our um, inactive T4 to convert that into active T3? So what other nutrients are involved in this process? Um, and, yeah, and, and we target it that way. But um, so, yeah, I guess that's the difference. So conventional, you need to fall, you fall without those reference ranges. And mind you, the reference ranges are so broad as well, and they've actually changed them as well. So it depends on the lab that you, that you visit. Mm. Um, as to what their reference ranges are. I've just been diagnosed with Hashimoto's and I'm obviously in a lot of Hashimoto's groups um, talking about it. And subclinical seems to be just one of those terms that keeps coming up. And there's a lot of confusion around exactly that conventional medicine. So when they go to doctors, doctors Mm -hmm. say there's nothing that you can do and there's nothing wrong. But if they keep doing what they're doing now, they can obviously push those ranges and you know, and become a lot worse and a lot more severe with their symptoms. Yeah. So it is, it's a really confusing kind of gray area. So in terms of your own journey, 
what did you do to help heal the gut and what can you do to help heal the gut from, you know, going from someone who has, you know, a colonoscopy every two years, lots mm-hmm. of um, polyps, which are obviously, as you say, can lead to cancer. And we've had a, a, a great um a great talk with Bowel Cancer Australia actually about how prevalent they are in younger people yep. and how much you need to actually look out for those. So mm-hmm. what can you do to start going through that journey and start healing the gut? Yeah. So I guess it's really down to the individual and what they present with in terms of their mm-hmm. symptom picture. Um, but so I typically would see a patient and we'll go through the, their presentation, the symptoms that they're dealing with. Um, and then I would either suggest, I mean, well, usually first off, we'll try different, um, we'll try different herbs or different nutraceuticals to help them based on their symptom picture. And so we'll see if that's enough to just give them that extra support that they need to push them over the edge and sort of out back into balance. And then if that's, if that sort of ends up, um, consistently staying that way then we go okay yep that's fine um and and they're happy with that maybe they just needed that bit of a push otherwise we go into um further testing so i love functional testing that's an area that i have done a lot of extra training in um so microbiome analysis is um the one that i'm most um well microbiome analysis and breath testing so if it's lower gut so where we see well lower and upper gut but we see in terms of microbiome analysis we're going to get a full picture in terms of exactly what's residing in the microbiome so basically um we've got most bacteria in our large intestine so we've got the small intestine and the large intestine the large intestine houses majority of the um the bacteria right and we have a lot of diversity there and so more diversity more the more diverse the microbiome um, that is associated with more beneficial health outcomes. So basically what's in the microbiome is you've got bacteria, you've got archaea, um, fungi, parasites, viruses, pretty much all of these things in there and they work together in this um, delicate balance and I mean very, very delicate balance, right? And so <clears throat> when I said as well about, you know, the more diverse, the more healthy the individual, this is where we have a look at things like um, your microbiome and anything that's impacted the microbiome throughout your life. So we develop our microbiome in the first three years of life, right? This is what we're stuck with for the rest of our life, right? So it's crucial in those first three years of life that we, yeah, it's really amazing. It's it's Mm. crucial in those first three years of life that we're trying to not interfere with that process. So things that all affect um I guess like antibiotics or were you born vaginally? Were you born by a cesarean? Um, were you were you stressed as above as well? So stress significantly will impact will impact the gut micro- microbiome. Were you sick? You know what sort of um, bacteria were you exposed to as above? Um, <clears throat> so when you think about having a more diverse microbiome, think about antibiotics for instance and what impact that has on the microbiome, right? So antibiotics are like, I guess, a bulldozer knocking down a building, right? There's nothing left. It's wiping everything out, right? Mm-hmm. And so with that, it then means that we've not, we've knocked everything down, everything's at really, really low levels, or in some instances, some some bacteria, even beneficial microbes are completely wiped out and we can't replenish them again, right? 
But we've got this where we've, we've knocked them all out and now it's up to them to see who's going to grow the fastest, who's going to make up um, the dominant strains within the microbiome, right? And this is where we see a lot of really chronic infections because everything's been wiped out. We haven't been able to support the beneficial flora to regrow right and so we have this is where we have opportunity so we have opportunistic microorganisms that overgrow and you end up with all of these um, long-term chronic health conditions because we don't have any basically any army troops to fight the fight we don't have any beneficial flora um so yeah i guess like yeah in a nutshell that's you know, the microbiome and that's why we need to really look after, nourish our, benef- nourish our beneficial flora because we're exposed to so much throughout our, you know, throughout our life um, in terms of like illness and, you know, travel, all that sort of thing, environmental toxins. And yeah, like I said before, stress as well. So could we dive into what is the link between our thyroid and our gut microbiome? The thyroid and the microbiome are connected by a few different mechanisms. Right. So first of all, you've got to think about so the gut in a as as a whole. So we've got to focus on those nutrients, being able to absorb nutrients that are required for thyroid thyroid hormone production and thyroid hormone like conversion. So that that conversion from T4 to T3. But then also um, we need we've got particular cofactors as well involved in this process, and we need nutrients that will convert those cofactors so that they can be utilized by the thyroid gland. So there's a lot going on. Um, so I guess in terms of the gut um, and um, digestion, we need to be making sure that we're absorbing those nutrients from our diet. Um, so I guess that's probably the key. So having a look at, um, I guess, from an upper gut perspective, what's what's going on in terms of stomach acid? Do we have enough stomach acid? Um, I see a lot of patients that have um, low stomach acid or patients that have reflux, for instance, that are on antacid medications. Um, and that's going to really reduce the that's that obviously reduces stomach acid production, which is going to reduce the absorption of nutrients. But then also it really interferes with that that barrier because and that 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 immune response because we need stomach acid to to basically because pathogens can't survive with high stomach acid. So that's our that's our defense. So when the stomach acid is is low, um, yeah, it can impact that as well. Um, but other things that we need in terms of um, that, so absorption of nutrients, we see that the small intestine needs to be intact. So we can't have any inflammation there. When there's inflammation, we're not going to absorb our nutrients, right? So different conditions such as inflammatory bowel disease or celiac disease, for instance, that's also um, going to damage the gut lining and therefore nutrients won't, won't be able to actually get absorbed through. Um, and then I guess the other thing as well is in terms of the microbiome itself. So the microbiome actually um, regulates that nutrient uptake as well. So it's not even, it's not just the upper gut, it's the microbiome. They have such a huge impact. Those bugs have an impact on the absorption of, of the nutrients. Um, <clears throat> and then the enterohepatic um, cycling of thyroid hormones as well. So the microbiome has a huge impact on that too. So it's just all these different areas that it has such a strong impact on how we can actually utilize. Um, so not only absorb, but utilize the nutrients. So I've heard patients that have Hashimoto's can have celiac disease. Would you be able to dive into this a bit further? Yeah, there's a concept called of um, called molecular mimicry. Have you heard of mm. that before? No. No. So basically, 
Yeah, so basically gluten contains a protein called gliadin, right? Mm. And gliadin looks similar to transglutaminase, which is an enzyme that's found abundantly in the thyroid. So when we have high thyroid antibodies, the thyroid antibodies um, are attacking this transglutaminase, but it's also going, um, looking at the gliadin, right, and thinking that that's, you know, that's foreign and that needs to be attacked and therefore attacks that as well. And the thyroid antibodies go up even higher. Um, So you notice that when you take gluten out of the diet, that the thyroid antibodies actually go down, um, which is really interesting. Um, but also gluten as an inflammatory substrate um, can really contribute to that inflammation on its own. It is. It's really inflammatory to the gut. Um, and, again, that's going to trigger the immune system and then, yeah, it's that whole cascade of inflammation um, in, the, in the immune system that, yeah, creates this massive fire, for instance, and exacerbates the, um, the presentation. Interesting. Because Clara's not, so, sorry if you don't mind me sharing, Clara, but you're on a diet at the moment where you're cutting yeah. things out. So are you cutting out yeah, gluten? Yeah, so I was going to say, yeah, I am. So one of the things is I'm gluten. Are this, so I'm doing a, um, an autoimmune protocol for like four weeks um, to just see what triggers my body and what doesn't trigger my body. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the things is obviously gluten. And I have had a little bit of an experiment over the weekend that was really cheeky, to be fair. I shouldn't have done it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had some gluten yesterday. And then I started to feel sick, like, within a few hours of having the gluten, which I've never really had before. And then today I've been super tired. So I've had all my energy levels gone straight back up and I thought the sick thing might not be it but Mm -hmm. I started to read a little bit more into it and I am super tired today and normally I've been since going gluten-free dairy-free and I'm sugar-free obviously I quit sugar anyway but I'm totally sugar-free at the moment like I'm not having any kind of berries or any kind of low fructose fruit which is allowed in I quit sugar world I'm totally sugar-free at the moment I've mm-hmm. noticed my energy levels increase significantly. Yeah, amazing. But cheating yesterday, and wow, I'm whacked today. I'm I'm slightly out of it, and I'm whacked. Yeah. Wow. Have you been tested for celiac disease? Yeah, I came back negative. Came back negative. Were you tested? Um, was that just the genetic screening, or did they also do the antibody screening for that? I think they just did the genetic screening. I don't think they've done the antibody yet. They only did one, not both. Not more. Okay. Well, because with the genetic screen, about sort of 50% of us have the celiac gene. So I just would right. wonder, yeah, have to have a look, but would wonder if that was positive or negative because so many people have it and then it's a matter of whether the gene is switched on or switched off. Oh, As okay. Together, you have an antibody increase. But the other thing too is you need to be consuming sufficient gluten. So it's a lot of gluten that you need to be consuming mm. over a six-week period for the antibodies to actually um, elevate enough for that to be detected on the test. So you basically have to go through a gluten challenge um, when testing for celiac disease. And we get like a lot of false negatives that way. Interesting. So I definitely didn't do a gluten challenge by any means. Yes. Yeah. Okay, um, yeah. I just, it was, yeah, it was just my normal diet. Um, mm. And they said that I was negative for celiac. I didn't even know they were testing it for me, uh, testing it at the same time. But yeah, okay. I, this is a little bit too much information, but 
but similar to you, I was having a few bowel issues um, and they thought that actually, so this was when they started to flag that I might have something to do with an autoimmune condition because I was having some bowel issues that they thought that could be that could be what's yeah. related. So they tested celiac, they tested my um, my antibodies, which is what or my thyroid antibodies, which also they came back with Hashimoto's. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, and the other thing too is there's actually there's a thing called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. I'm mm. not sure if you've heard of that as well. No. Um, yeah, so this is another. So whereas, you know, you're not actually celiac, but your body is reacting to the gluten. And, you know, based on your symptom presentation there, you can tell, right? You can tell I this can, is I, generating. 100%. Yeah. Oh, how yeah. amazing is that? And then yeah. in terms of your Hashimoto's as well, um, were you told that you wouldn't be able to get those antibodies down? No. So I was told absolutely nothing. So okay. basically oh, what ended up happening was, yeah, so I don't have um, but the antibodies are really high. So I knew mm -hmm. that it and in the lab results it says you've got Hashimoto's basically, but then mm -hmm. my TS3 and my TS4 weren't mm -hmm. particularly high. Mm -hmm. So the doctor just basically went, you um, that doesn't that's not really conclusive. So we can't really say anything one or the other. And then I started to read into it. I obviously saw a naturopath and the naturopath went, yeah, they would call you what is subclinical and you definitely have some autoimmune condition like going mm -hmm. on and that you need to fix this. Yeah. So it was very similar to, you know, yeah. numerous other people. And yeah. my thing is I don't want it to get to a point where my mm -hmm. thyroid antibodies, uh, antibodies are attacking my thyroid. <laughs> So yeah. I want to I want to fix it now where the doctors just weren't concerned whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Oh, that's such a yeah, it's it's really hard and you know, especially postpartum as well. You see so mm. many women that present with Hashimoto's. Um and I mean, I've experienced it myself. Um mm. I had mildly elevated thyroid antibodies. Um so it wasn't um, it wasn't that high. Um, I've had patients with antibodies in the thousands, um, and right. yeah, and you know, and I've been told by by doctors that you can't get the the antibodies down, but that's so false. You you can. I've seen it clinically. I know other naturopaths that have seen mm. it clinically, and you absolutely can get those those antibodies down. And like I said too, as well, it's around. What's going on? So, yeah, there's an immune component with Hashimoto, mm. so you really need to target the immune system and get mm. that inflammation down. But then with the thyroid, why is my body not producing um, the thyroid hormone, right? Mm. Do I not have the nutrients required for that thyroid hormone production and that conversion, right? Um, so it's assessing the thyroid um, properly, assessing the thyroid um, and holistically assessing the thyroid as well. Mm. So typically when you go to the doctor, the doctor will check your TSH. Yeah. Yeah. And so you would have obviously experienced this. Yeah. Um, and if your TSH is within the ranges, they usually say, well, um, that's great and we're not going to do any further investigation. But very often, and especially like I said too, because that range is so broad, very often the um, TSH is within the range and then you check the so the patient may pay to get the thyroid mm. function so we're going to check the t3 the t4 you check that and you go oh okay well no that's actually really low and that's why you're feeling the symptoms that you're feeling right yeah um, 
but to get those tests over the line, it's just, yeah, it, it's so hard for, for a patient to go in there and get that tested. Um, but yeah, again, then when that's low, if it's still within the ranges, they go, okay, well, there's nothing that we can do to help. So it's about going, okay, how, how, how do I win here? And that's why, you know, lots of my patients will go and get private testing because we want to check all the cofactors. So are they low? So with me, for instance, I had low iodine. So you need to get your urinary iodine checked, right? Um, that was low. So I didn't have a really important nutrient required for the thyroid right mm. thyroid hormone production so without that it was never going to get i was never going to build 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 my thyroid up um so yeah it's um it's yeah really unfortunate and um so so many people i see are left less struggling um other things too though for instance iron so iron is utilized in thyroid hormone production yeah is this something that you struggled with with your iron yeah, so I've now I'm on an iron supplement. Yeah. Um, and I'm on a vitamin D supplement. And can you dive a little bit into selenium? Yeah. Because I've heard a lot around that when it comes to thyroid conditions. Um yeah. and there seems to be people that say take it as a supplement, but then other people say that it's quite dangerous if you do take it as a supplement and mm-hmm. you're not deficient in that area. Yeah. So selenium, yeah, you do need to be careful with selenium because mm. um, high levels of selenium can be um, toxic, but that's why you get your selenium levels checked um, and make sure um, that, you know, you are require, requiring that nutrient. But selenium plays a huge role in terms of that immune um, immune component when it comes to Hashimoto's especially, but mm. also for thyroid on its own. So selenium... It, the sorry, the thyroid gland contains the highest amount of selenium in the body. So we need selenium. Deficient selenium means that we're not going to be able to create that thyroid thyroid hormone that's required for thyroid hormone production. Um, yeah. So it, but like I said too, so too much selenium is toxic. So you do need to be really careful with it and make sure you test. You don't guess. So, I guess this is the age-old question. There mm-hmm. seems to be so much that you need tested for. Doctors just won't do it. Like it's so diff- it was so difficult for me to get the testing that I did get tested um, to find out about the Hashimoto side of things. Mm-hmm. Is the best port of call for you to go to a naturopath? Is there a way to, you know, because obviously it could be quite expensive as well for a lot of people to be able to access the testing side of things. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about that? We can use, we can go privately um, mm. and it is, uh, look, you can either go doctor shopping. <laughs> so some <laughs> doctors, I know, some doctors will, some doctors will. So I, when I write referrals for my patients, I'll I'll provide a rationale as to why I want to get those tests done, right? Because mm. um, lots of the time, you know, we may request tests, but if we don't say why we want the tests done, then they say, well, I'd, I'm not sure why, you, why you're why requesting these tests for. Mm. Um, it does obviously need to fall within their, you know, their, their rebate, their reasons, their Medicare um, reasoning. Um, but, yeah, so you can, some doctors will do it. It's just about finding a doctor that will do it. If the doctor won't do it, then you can do it privately. I yep. use iScreen. Um, I really like to use iScreen in that they have packages of tests, okay. um, so it's much more affordable rather than paying for them individually. Um, yeah, 
but you can get them. It's just about that persistence and it's about getting each test done. So for instance, at the start, I'll always order a thyroid function test sometimes and like again it just depends on the lab and who's working at the lab at the time sometimes you will get the tsh the t3 t4 even if the tsh is within range sometimes it'll just be the tsh right i get the thyroid results and i go okay this is not optimally functioning i want to make sure that you've got all the cofactors required so i want to make sure your iron's great i want to make sure your zinc's good your selenium your mm. vitamin d you know i want to ever look at your b vitamins as well because they're going to have a, a, an impact and then your urinary iodine as well so i want to be having a look at all the cofactors so this is when i'll go into and i'll request those i will provide a rationale as to why i require mm. them so what 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 part they play in terms of that thyroid hormone production. Um, and then, yeah, you just hope for the best. Like, honestly, some doctors will do it and some doctors won't. And like I said, it's just about going, okay, well, I might try another doctor or mm. I just I save myself the hassle and I'll pay for it and get it done. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah, but that's why it is. It's just that one step at a time. What I found through this journey is, it really is finding your person, like someone who's going to advocate for you um, that exactly to your point that will do all the testing <laughs> so that you mm. can find out. Because as I said to you, I'm iron, de- I'm iron deficient and vitamin D deficient and by mm. no means does that necessarily mean that I might have had a Hashimoto's or an autoimmune condition. A lot mm. of women <laughs> are iron and vitamin D deficient and I think that's mm. why they test for those pretty quickly as doctors. Yeah. Yeah. But the other stuff was not even mentioned to me. They didn't go a step further. Um, yeah. And, you know, in terms of me finding stuff out, it is me researching, me talking to the right people and being lucky enough to be able to be in a position to talk to a lot of people um, yeah. about the condition and find out what is going on. Mm-hmm. And so I really would strongly suggest that people advocate for themselves to find to dig deeper and to see if something's not right find out what it is exactly yeah oh absolutely and you see that with iron as well you know Mm. looking at at the gut right that's where iron's really important because inflammation celiac disease you're not going to absorb your iron and the other Mm. thing as well is things like parasites and other pathogenic bacteria they consume the iron so you could be getting enough you could be absorbing it but then you've got these other pathogens that are going and eating your iron so it's not available it's not available um for you know that for the thyroid Mm. and for other um you know other body systems that need the iron right yeah um, so, yeah, really going in there and um, figuring out, delving deeper, always delving deeper. If you have sufficient dietary intake of iron, mm. you should have enough iron, right? Or, yeah. What is causing this lack of iron, you know? And All then right. you, know, you also look at the female reproductive system there too. Are you losing too much iron? And then mm. why are you losing too much iron? So it's always getting down to getting back to that why. Why is this happening in the first place? That's so important. Um, but yeah, vitamin D is one of those things, I guess, based in, you know, based on where we live, that a lot of people mm. are vitamin D deficient. Um, and it is so important for our immune system. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, it's not covered anymore. Um, oh, well, it is covered, sorry. Unfortunately, um, doctors can't, they need to provide a reason code. It used to just mm. be able to, used to be able to just order it, whereas now they have to provide a reason code. Um, as to why you're requiring your vitamin D to be um, ordered. 
Mm. And um, yeah, so, but so many people are deficient in iron. So supplementing in iron, supplementing with iron, especially during winter is so important. Why is it so common that there's these deficiencies? Well, vitamin D is so commonly deficient because of where we where where we live. We just don't have that exposure, especially especially in um, in winter. But also because of our lifestyle. So we work indoors. We're not getting outside enough. <laughs> so we're working indoors on computer on computers. Um, and yeah, therefore we just don't have enough exposure. Do you feel like you have enough exposure, Clara? No, not at all. So. <laughs> Um, I I agree with you. So I think lifestyle, um, I think lifestyle is a huge factor in a lot of this. And when I say lifestyle, I mean modern lifestyle. So, you know, a large percentage of the time I was driving to work because, and it wasn't, you know, through laziness or anything, but I used to work in really random areas of Sydney and trying to get through Sydney and it wasn't easy by public transport. So it was none of that kind of stuff. So I'd have to drive. And I'd drive for an hour. I would go to work from 9 till 5 or 5.30 or whatever it is and then drive for an hour home. So I was out of the house from 8 o'clock in the morning until 6.30. Yeah. During most of the time that was, you know, the sun, especially yeah. during winter, that's when the yeah. sun is. Mm-hmm. I tended to, I always have eaten at my desk, not a great habit, but it's just you know, A, because of the areas I worked in as well. They weren't particularly lovely areas to go and sit outside and do stuff. Mm-hmm. So I would maybe walk and get lunch and come back and the walk might be 15, 20 minutes and then I'm back inside and mm-hmm. I was sitting at my desk. So that entire time I wasn't getting sunlight um, for five days a week. At one point I was working in television and that was even worse. But it's exactly that. It's just lifestyle these days. And now I work from home. So I have set up a routine that I'm doing actually something almost pretty similar to what I was doing, you know, when I was working an office job, because I work at home, I go for a walk, but I go for a walk at night with the dog. So it's not like I'm going for a walk in sunlight at all. So for five days a week, I'm just not getting that. And then on top of that, I feel like you know, there's a lot of food production, which I guess we talk a lot in Ike with Sugar World, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of advancements in um, food production and in processed foods. Mm-hmm. And realistically, I ate pretty well when I was living with my parents. It was very much, you know, um, we would cook a, you know, maybe a roast chicken, like talk about the hormones, but a roast <laughs> chicken and, you know, vegetables and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, meat and vegetables and and you would only have pasta maybe once a week, maybe twice a week, uh, twice a fortnight, sorry, uh, twice a month, sorry, once a fortnight. Um, try to work out maths at this hour. As I said, everybody, I've had gluten, so my brain fogs back. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you would, and it was all very much meat and veg, like it would be a steak and vegetables or a steak and salad or like lamb backstrap and salad or whatever it was it was very much around that because they're actually quite quick meals to make as a family and then you go into your 20s and you're on your own two minute maggi noodles sounds like a great idea at two o'clock in the morning Mm. and you and that's the stuff you can afford right and then it's Mm. you know and it becomes this cycle and really I think once you kind of hit your 20s 
Yeah. You you are, you know, you're working full time, so your body's in this weird circadian rhythm anyway, because at school you are outdoors quite a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, there's PE, there's you sit outside for lunch for an hour, you do all of that kind of stuff. When you hit your twenties, the damage that you're doing, I don't think people realize and you certainly don't think about it in your twenties, what that's actually doing to you in your 30s and 40s and how that's all going to you know set up I guess a rhythm or set up Mm. you know your your pattern for life yeah absolutely and that's where it comes back down to that's why I'm so passionate about the microbiome so you Mm. see how that occurs over such a long period of your life right so these are our dietary habits that we're yeah, the, our dietary habits over so many years, they are just slowly changing the composition of the microbiome, right? And then, mm. bam, later on, we end up with all of these health issues and we go, how did we get here? Yeah. yeah, Right? Um, so, yeah, that's why I am so passionate about the microbiome because this is exactly what I see, exactly what you've told me. So it is. It's those two-minute noodles. <laughs> There's no nutrient nutritional value to that mm-hmm. you know yeah. they're, they're fillers right we need our fruits and our vegetables but most importantly we need our fiber like mm, yeah. um, i see that i see that now you know it's it's fiber that everyone's lacking no one has yeah. fiber in their diets anymore um and that's you know your real your complex carbohydrates and these are what feed the bacteria in our gut and it's mm-hmm. a bit, and it's not about just the bacteria. So it's like you've got to feed the bacteria, but it's the metabolites that the bacteria produce, which go on to having no systemic effects around, you know, the whole body. That um, so yeah. that's where the gut connects to the rest of the body. It's via the metabolites secreted from these bacteria. Um, but yeah, it, that's that's where it stems from. It stems from from diet and not getting the fuel um, that they need and then that will get unfortunately shape shape the gut but we're not trained like we don't we don't know this stuff it's mm. just how diet has shift in the western in the western world exactly yeah. right and i think that's the problem and then there was you know this whole time around there being a war on fats for example there's a, you know obviously the war on sugar which i'm not against <laughs> by yeah. any means because it's talking about processed sugars but yeah. then we went through this whole thing where it was great to juice for example and you would mm-hmm. go and have a juice diet and as you said that takes total fiber out of that like there is no yeah. fiber in a juice and all you're consuming is the high sugars side of things yeah. um food is made to be consumed as a whole yeah you know, there is a balance within food that we have taken out as a society and all of a sudden it got really trendy to go and have juices and it got really trendy to do all of these things. Mm-hmm. And as you said, it's the years of you doing it that really throw you and there is no education around that. You know, I remember in my day when we used to sit down, God, I sound old, don't I? <laughs> we used to sit down and it was the food pyramid and then it was mm-hmm. the plate and the plate, you know, cut up into what all your portion sizes are. But I mm. looked at the food pyramid recently for someone who has diabetes and has been given the food pyramid and it's really old-fashioned <laughs> to say mm-hmm. the least and yep. the information on it is not particularly 
correct at all anymore to modern understanding. But it hasn't been updated. And if that's still what we're teaching children, then we're mm. missing some of those really big fundamentals. Yeah. Oh, I see kids. So I've got three little ones. Mm. Um, so they're ages two, four, seven. And so the seven-year-old um, at school, you know, it's always about what am I packing in your lunchbox mm. um, because I want to make sure that you're getting a balanced diet but then also getting the fuel that you need for the day. And I don't want to be giving you, you know, sugary snacks or, you know, simple carbohydrates that are going to make you sort of and then expect you, I suppose, and then expect you to sit down in a classroom and, and actually listen and learn because you're jumping off the walls. Yeah. Um. But, yeah, seeing seeing what kids eat eat nowadays, it's just so, it's such a shame and it's it's so hard to see because, but it's not because parents don't want to feed their kids healthy food. It's because mm. they're not educated. They don't actually know. Yeah. They don't realise the importance of food and how much of an impact that has on the whole body. Um, and so, yeah, I guess just, yeah, it's, and, and like you said too, it's about making sure they've got, healthy fats they need those healthy fats as well you know they need sufficient protein protein is made up of amino acids which are the building blocks for our neurotransmitters Mm. we need sufficient protein so that we can concentrate in the classroom and that we can stay full for longer right kids get away with just snacking all day kids Mm -hmm. get away just eating Mm. um, white fruits we need to be including our fruits and our vegetables for our fiber and those polyphenols that are going to feed the microbiome Mm. everything plays a role um, but yeah, it's just, again, like the Western diet and how it's changed over the years. Mm. And unfortunately to the detriment, because we see so many health issues nowadays. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. And for all our listeners who want to learn a little bit more, we'll put links in our show notes below. Like this podcast, please give us a five-star review and share it with someone who you think would benefit from it. We want to help as many people as possible live healthier lives. This podcast is general in nature. We aren't doctors or health practitioners. But if this podcast has prompted something for you, we really encourage you to make an appointment with your health practitioner and get advice that is tailored to you. This podcast is recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples.